0: So good morning to you guys. Uh, how many of you have noticed recently that America is beginning to unravel? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to scare anybody this morning. I don't want to make you a prepper uh, or send you into a panic or anything like that. But there are things happening in our country right now that I, as a 50-something-year-old man, have not seen before in my lifetime. And um, our institutions are beginning to fail us in many many ways the things that we counted on to be sort of the bedrock of our american system for more than 200 years just sort of seem to be coming apart look at congress as an example i think the approval rating for congress is like 9% right now does anybody really believe that our representatives are working for us anymore on our behalf for our good or is it become mainly about Accumulating political power. How about our courts? Every day we seem to hear another story about a multi-tiered justice system. Who gets persecuted or who gets prosecuted, who doesn't get prosecuted, who gets sentenced to a long sentence, who gets just let out. And it all sort of defies common sense. We really can't figure out what's going on there. It's as if Lady Justice is no longer blind as she's supposed to be. Then there's our intelligence services. This may be the most recent shock that we've gone through, the FBI, the CIA, others. We have trusted them with immense and secretive power, and now it's come out that they've been politicized, that they're picking and choosing who they want to go after and who they want to punish. What about the mighty corporations that serve as the engine of our economy? We love, as Americans, to tout our free-market capitalism. But then you hear stories about the widening income gap that's happening in this country between the haves and the have-nots. Some of you are experiencing it right now, the cost of food and housing and healthcare is rising faster than your wages. And there's this growing uh, income gap that's coming in. I, I read something yesterday that I still am having a hard time wrapping my, my arms around. But Jeff Bezos, who, who owns Amazon, is now the richest man on the planet, catch the gap here. The average Amazon employee makes $28,500 a year. Jeff Bezos makes that amount every nine seconds. I mean, let that sink in. I tried to do the math. It's beyond what I can even fathom. How much money? He's worth something like $130 billion now. Finally, there's our media. Media. Maybe what I would say is probably the most corrupted institution in my lifetime. Political bias has infected every major newspaper, every single news channel. We live in a post-truth world. There is nothing coming at you anymore that you can say that is neutral. Everything is biased, it's spun to the left, it's spun to the right, and everything is fake news. We don't know what to believe anymore. We don't know what to trust in. And so all these things are sort of happening all at one time the mask has come off, so to speak. I may be a little bit naive, but when I was growing up, I'm going to do one of those old guy stories. When I was growing up, uh, we believe that the people who sort of led our institutions were at least acting in good faith. I may be naive, but we believe that they were working for the best for our nation and for its citizens. But it seems those days are long gone. Now, maybe it's just the mask has come off and we're seeing what was always true. I don't know, but it seems like things are going in the wrong direction. And as a result, you get a sense that there's a boiling anger in America, right? People are frustrated, people are are, are growing angry. Four years ago, there was all kinds of political anger on the right, and we elected Donald Trump to be president, and now what's happening on the left? More anger, and they have brought Bernie Sanders in. It looks like the left is actually going to put a devoted socialist slash communist up as their presidential candidate. This is what happens when a society begins to distrust its institutions, when people begin to feel like the system is rigged and it's rigged against them. It's benefiting somebody somewhere, but it's not benefiting them. And so make no mistake, both Trump and Bernie represent strong statements from the American public. And the statement is basically this, burn it all to the ground, burn it to the ground. Doesn't bode well for us. And so what do we feel like what's happening in this country? Corruption, greed, oppression, abuse of power, injustice. We see it all around us. Now, tragically, it's not that different than what we see in 8th century Judah. I don't know if that makes you feel any better, but this is nothing new. Because the heart of man doesn't change. Even over 2,800 years, the heart of man doesn't change. So some of the same conditions, different contexts, different culture but some of the same conditions were present in the days of Micah. So I want you to grab your Bibles and I want you to turn there and we're going to look at some of the things that Micah describes and maybe you'll see some parallels to what's happening in America today. Where is Micah in the canon? Again, it's in that section we're calling the Minor Prophets. You see the name of our series, Return to Me. Micah comes after Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obi-Wan, I mean Obadiah, uh, and then Jonah, and then Micah. Now the book of Micah has some similar, I'll let you turn there, the book of Micah has some similarities to the book of Hosea, which we looked at last week, and primarily in this, it can be a really hard book to interpret. And the reason for it is you're reading through it, you see him sort of alternate back and forth between uh, a message of doom and judgment, and then suddenly a message of, of hope And sometimes all within the same chapter. And so it can be sort of confusing to interpret. I'll try to help you through some of it this morning. But let's look at the first verse in Micah. And we'll do our our due diligence in terms of our our history, our historical context. A little shorter than last week. You guys were so good to me last week. You let me walk all the way through the Assyrian Empire. More next Sunday. (laughs) A little bit lighter today. Okay, so the first verse in Micah's prophecy goes like this. The word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Morasheth, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So we see a little bit of a change here uh, from Amos and Hosea. Both of them said that they prophesied under Jeroboam II, a very uh, powerful king in, in the northern kingdom of Israel, but Micah doesn't list him. He only lists... Kings of Judah, right? Three kings of Judah. Why is that? Because as Micah is prophesying, the northern kingdom of Israel is crumbling, and it's about to fall permanently to the Assyrian Empire. So he lists only kings of Judah. In fact, let's go ahead. We'll we'll put this up here. So this is part of what I showed you last week. Grant pointed out that, or Adam pointed out that I have a pirate symbol up there. That's not a pirate symbol. That's a death and destruction symbol. So hang with me on this, okay? So we yeah, so we looked at, it's terrible, it's terrible, I uh, know. So uh, above the line is, of course, the northern kingdom of Israel, and, and I, I tried to describe for you last week how chaotic these last 30 years in the life of Israel was. You have six kings serving in 30 years, and in that you have a number of coups and assassinations and, and, and kings being overthrown. It's a terrible and hectic time leading up to 722 B.C., When the northern kingdom falls to Assyria Now we look at the southern kingdom And you see Uzziah, a very powerful king That was ruling in 767 And Amos was president at that time And here are the three kings that Micah mentions Jotham 740, Ahaz 732 And the great Hezekiah Who's going to serve from 716 all the way to 687 Okay, So you can see there that Micah is going to prophesy Beyond the fall of Israel so he's gonna be an eyewitness to the fall of the northern kingdom and continue to prophesy in Judah beyond that into Hezekiah's reign. Make sense? Okay, good. Now, according to verse one in our text, Micah is from a little town called what? Moresheth, which is located in what we call the Shephelah, or the, the sort of the low rolling hills of Judea, beautiful part of, of Israel. Uh, between the hill country where Jerusalem is and the coastal plain, you had these low rolling hills that are really, I, I think, one of the most beautiful parts of, of the land. Historically, that is the border right between the Philistines and the Israelites. And so right in that range, that sort of uh, ribbon of, of low rolling hills is where most of the battles took place between the Philistines and the Israelites. I'll give you a map. You knew I would. Okay, so this is what we're talking about. Some, so blue is what? Jerusalem right red is Moresheth that's where Micah is from and you see this this area here these low rolling hills uh, Morasheth is very near Gath Where do we know who's from Gath Goliath right that's the hometown of of Goliath the giant and that's that green dot you see there and then the yellow dots are two other really important cities that will come up either today or next week depending on how much time I have Um, But two very important ones. The one to the north there is Azekah, and that's the site of the battle between David and Goliath. And then the the one to the south of there is Lachish, which has a real important connection with with King Hezekiah, which, again, we'll probably get to next week. And yes, Team Israel is going to both Azekah and Lachish when we're there in just a couple of months. So it's going to be really, really cool. Okay, so that's that's our map for the day. Now, Micah was a contemporary of Hosea. And as we learned, he was a deathbed prophet, right? He's the last prophet sent to the northern kingdom before they fall. So he's prophesying at the same time Hosea is saying, good night, goodbye, you know, clean up on your way out, turn off the lights because Israel's about to go down. And Micah is also prophesying at the same time as who? Isaiah. So we're not talking about major prophets in this series, but Isaiah and Micah are prophesying at the same time in the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's really interesting to see the differences between these two men, the way God sort of tag teams them in delivering his message to the people in this time. Isaiah, the best way to understand Isaiah, he's sort of God's man on the inside. Isaiah has has contacts and acquaintances with the kings of Judah and the leaders of Judah. And he's constantly giving policy recommendations to men like Hezekiah. So he's on the inside. Micah is on the outside. He's God's man on the outside. He's from He's from a country region, okay, similar to Amos. He's from a farming region in in, uh, Moresheth. So he's more of that country preacher that stands back and sees the sin in Judah, what's happening in Judah from the perspective of the common man or the common woman. Even though he's called to go to the big city and to confront sin in the power centers of Judah, he's sort of a country preacher. So we got inside and outside, but God's message is is very similar. Sometimes people refer to Micah as a mini-Isaiah. Because a lot of the messages that they're saying uh, are are, are very, very similar. So what do we know about these three kings of Judah that uh, Micah is serving under? I'll put them back up on the screen. Well, Jotham walked in the footsteps of his father, Uzziah. um, And and what does that mean? Well, he's judged to be a righteous king, even though not perfect by a long shot. In fact, Scripture says he, he, he did what was right in God's eyes, but he failed to remove all the centers of idolatry in the land. Okay, so he gets sort of a, I mean, I guess he gets an A minus. Not quite an A, but an a, maybe a B plus. But he doesn't remove all the idolatry from the land. Ahaz, his son, is utterly and thoroughly wicked. This guy allowed Baal worship to, to increase in the land. 2 Kings, uh, Kings 16 says he personally participated in idolatry, in paganism, and even participated in child sacrifice, if you can imagine. His own son child sacrifice. So he's as bad as it gets. And then there's Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah is one of the greatest kings of Judah. And the, the shame today is we don't have time to talk about him because his story is so big and so important. It deserves a series. It really is. He is, he is that important of a king. So I'll give you, you know, some recommendations that you can study on your own. 2 Kings 18 and 19. So this has a lot to say about Hezekiah. And 2 Chronicles, 29 to 33 are all about Hezekiah. Now, what I love about Hezekiah is he's so darned relatable. And you know why he's relatable? Because he's like all of us. He's sort of a mixed bag, right? There's times when he's super pragmatic and self-reliant and a little bit stubborn like us. And then there's times when he's full of faith and he throws himself on the mercy of God's throne when when he needs to. Sort of as a last resort, which is unfortunately what we tend to do a lot as well. So he's super relatable. He's a mixture of failure and victory. And I'm hoping next week we can do a little bit of a discussion about some of the things that he experienced. But he is worth your time if you want to study him in your, uh, your private study. So quick overview then of how Micah is organized. When scholars step back and they look at these chapters, how many chapters of Micah? Who read this week? Seven chapters. When they stand back and look at it, um, most scholars would say that there are basically three separate what we call oracles or sections within the prophecy itself. And each one of them starts with a very important Hebrew word, hear. Okay, that's a classic Hebrew call to attention. Hear this, O people. Hear this, O rulers. Hear this, O king. And so in chapter 1, verse 2, Micah begins, hear, O peoples. At the beginning of chapter 3, he says, hear now, heads of Jacob. The beginning of chapter 6, he starts with, Hear now what the Lord is saying. So again, most scholars think that it's probably these three sections written at three different times within the life of Micah. Um, And again, each one of them tends to have dual tracks to it. First of all, a message of gloom and doom and judgment, but also a message of hope. And again, that's what can make it sort of confusing. But this is what we've seen already, right? The typical prophetic formula. This is basically how it goes. Hey, people, listen or hear let me lay out your sin. Here's how judgment will come if you don't repent and turn from your wicked ways, but there's always hope in the end because why? Not because you're faithful, but because God is faithful, faithful to his covenant. Over and over again, we see this thing. These guys are what we call covenant prosecutors. I used that term last week. They are there to indict the people based on the covenant stipulations that were given to them by Moses, right? So, so that's what they do. They prosecute the case against the people for transgressing the covenant and the obligations that they have agreed to. Now, in that, in that indictment or prosecution, Micah is primarily known for one type of accusation, and that's the accusation of injustice. Injustice in the land. Injustice in God's promised land. Injustice, if you can imagine, within the covenant community. And so That's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. But before we go there, one quick thing to take note of. Look at chapter 1. Before Micah turns his attention to Judah and the sins there, he does prophesy against the soon-to-be-destroyed northern kingdom of Israel. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. He says, For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. The language is trying to say what? God is glorious and majestic, and when he comes, you better watch out. This is serious stuff, right? Verse 5, all this is for the rebellion of Jacob. What's, the, what's Jacob? Israel, right? For the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Now, we think New Testament-wise, Samaria, we think of it as a region between Judea and Galilee. But here in the Old Testament, it's the capital city of the northern kingdom. That is the rebellion of Jacob, this capital city. By the way, it's interesting. The capital city of Samaria was never rebuilt once it was destroyed by the Assyrians. It's fascinating. Jerusalem rebuilt over and over and over again, right? A lot of the land in the Southern kingdom rebuilt. Samaria to this day lies in ruins, never rebuilt. It is an absolutely neglected site. Now it happens to be in Palestinian territory in the West Bank. So not a lot of money's being funded to dig it out, but it fascinates me to see that God has left it as a ruin. God is displeased with Samaria because that's the center of idolatry of the northern kingdom. Never been rebuilt. Okay, where was I? There it is. Okay, what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Uh Uh-oh, that doesn't bode well for the south. Verse six, for I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country. That's what it still is all these years later, a heap of ruins. Now, there's more bad news. That's, That's bad enough, but if you drop down to verse nine, What you see here is that the sin and rebellion of the north has not stayed there. It's begun to flow downstream. Verse 9 says, her, Israel's wound is incurable. Okay, judgment is coming. Her wound is incurable for it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people even to Jerusalem. This does not bode well for the southern kingdom, does it? All that sin, that rebellion, that idolatry, it can't help but seep across the border into God's people in the south. So with that, let's look at the indictment here and let's focus on Micah's primary issue, which is the issue of injustice. And we're gonna to try to apply this today to our lives because that term justice is quite confusing today. I know I've said this verse, i quoted this verse a number of times in the series, but I'll say it again. To whom much is entrusted, much is required, right? And God in his sovereignty has seen fit to grant things to human beings, to sinners, things like wealth and power and authority. He's given these things to sinners. Does that sound scary? Because the temptation, whenever you have wealth, power, and authority, is what? To abuse it, to use it for personal gain, to oppress others. So it doesn't surprise us that these things continue to go on, whether it's 8th century B.C. or it's 21st century America. So, within the covenant community, God's expectation is that these things, wealth, power, and authority, will be used for good and not for evil. To whom much is given, much is required. That it'll be used for lifting people up and not tearing them down, not oppressing them. But when Micah looks and examines the society he lives in, all he sees at every layer of society is injustice. Again, sort of what, I don't know about you, but I'm beginning to see more of in our society today. Injustice at every single, everywhere I turn, I see it. Flagrant injustice. So the first thing, he's going to talk about four particular groups within society that God believes are under his judgment because of injustice. So let's walk through these. The first one is the wealthy and powerful in in, uh, Judah society. Look at chapter two, verse one. Chapter two, verse one. Micah begins with what we call a woe oracle, okay? In Hebrew literature, this is a very serious thing. It was often used to describe the death of something, a woe oracle, okay? Woe to those who scheme iniquity, he says, okay? God has a passionate hatred, listen to me now, a passionate hatred for people who premeditate wickedness, who scheme to harm other people. In an unrighteous fashion, it's a, God has a, a passionate hatred for that sin. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When the morning comes, they do it. Why? For it's in the power of their hands. The point of this is the wealthy and powerful in society, whether again, whether it's America or Judah, if you have the economic power, the political power, the financial power, You can get away with a lot of stuff. And these folks were getting away with a lot of stuff. They could do it. They they had the power to get away with it, to sin against people, to steal, to cheat, to lie, and they were getting away with it. Verse 2, what do they do? They covet, violation of the 10th commandment, they covet fields or land, and then they seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. So these are land grabbers. These are wealthy people who own the judiciary, own the police, bribe everybody, and they go around snatching people's lands. They're land grabbers. And they're violating, in the midst of that, a key principle of covenant life. Remember, we're talking about, pe- we're talking about Jews, we're talking about people who live together in a covenant with God and with one another. And here they are violating one another's stuff, taking it, stealing it. It's shocking. Not only the, the right to private ownership and the right to farm the land, which, by the way, was necessary for survival. If you didn't own land, you were in trouble. If you didn't own land, you probably were thrown out in the streets and you were start facing starvation or slavery or something like that. But these things are being taken away. But the bigger issue is people are stealing sections of God's promised land because it's his land. And they're stealing sections of it and, and pieces of land that have been granted to families that it might be farmed and passed down generation to generation. And these land barons are going around and snatching it all up. And so rather than spreading out the land so that everybody has a place to farm, the, and Isaiah talks about it in, in his prophecy in chapter 5, these land barons are grabbing these estates and building giant, wealthy farms for themselves. God hates it. Drop down to verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8, here's another example. Recently, my people have arisen as an enemy. You strip the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passersby, from those who return from war. The women of my people you evict, each one from her pleasant house. From her children you take my splendor, God says, forever. So here we see powerful people likely involved in some type of lending. And they don't hesitate, they have no sense of hesitation to collect on that debt, no matter who the people are, no matter how vulnerable they are, to simply scoop them up and take their stuff. Taking the very robe off a man's back, the garment from a war veteran, evicting the most vulnerable members of an ancient society. Women or probably widows and their children, throwing them out of their houses, putting them on the street, again, facing starvation or slavery. We're supposed to be in covenant together. So what's missing? Compassion and mercy and the type of kindness that should mark a member of God's covenant community. And look at the language in verse eight. By preying on the most powerless people in society, those, are suppo- those who are supposed to be my people, God says, by their actions, look what he calls them. You've become an enemy of mine. You do not want to be an enemy of God, but they've become that. Turn over to chapter six. Look at verse 11. One more time. Here we shift into the marketplace. So if you're, a, if you're working a business right now, here's a really good passage to look at. What is God? God is by the, way, God's the Lord of the marketplace, is he not? He's the Lord of your business. I don't care if you're, your, your boss CEO is a, is a pagan uh, atheist. God is Lord of your business. He's Lord of the marketplace. Chapter 6, verse 11. Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Again, the wealthy and the powerful are able to get away with oppressing the, the less powerful. And they do it here by using false measures. They're cheating. And they're cheating their fellow Israelites. When Mikey uses the term violence there, he's probably not talking about physical violence. He's talking about cruelty. They do it in a cruel way. These cheating business people are marked by deceit and lies, and they do it for personal gain and at the cost of their covenant brothers and sisters. It's shocking, shocking behavior. So, first and foremost, and most common in Micah, is this idea of the wealthy and powerful oppressing the others. But there's other categories. Here's the second category false prophets. Look at 3 5, chapter 3, verse 5. False prophets operating in the land. Can you imagine the gall? Can you imagine the nerve? Of being a false prophet in God's land? It's dangerous stuff, right? Chapter 3, verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Interesting. Interesting. So as we've been looking at over the last few weeks, prophets played an incredibly important role in in, in Judah's society. They were recognized as the very voice of God, directing people according to God's will. Sometimes they embodied God's message, as we've seen a couple times already. They're very, very important. So what happens when a so-called prophet gives up his integrity? Uh, You can make make a little bit of a parallel into the church today. What happens when a, a, a pastor, a teaching pastor gives up his integrity, and stops teaching truth, and begins to lead people astray. What happens when the prophet is no longer saying, thus saith the Lord, but he's saying, thus say I, and people are lacking discernment and are following him. It's a disaster. Trust is eroded. People who lack that discernment are led into sin. And so Micah is furious. The language here is so strong. These charlatans are, they're preachers for hire. Do we have that today? Yeah, we do. People that preach for money, they preach for personal gain. They're preachers for hire. They will say whatever the wealthy and powerful want to hear, right? I mean, why would you upset the person that can bribe you? You tell them what, you, what they want to hear. If they have something to bite with their teeth, Micah says, in other words, if there's a financial incentive, then they'll declare peace. You know what? Everything's great. God is going to bless you. Have you heard that? But but if you interrupt that scheme and get in the way of them doing that and you tell them to start prophesying truthfully and you don't give them a financial incentive, then watch out because Micah says, what will they do? They might just call down a holy war on your head. So they're reacting to people. They're preaching for this audience that, you know, how much money are you going to give me? Well, what message do you want to hear? Well, tell me how much money you got. How shocking. These are people that claim to be prophets in God's land. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Third category, drop down to verse 9. Not only false prophets, but now we have false priests. Verse 9. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Verse 11. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price... And her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity won't come upon us. Once again, this is a terrible violation of trust. These are the men, the priests who serve in the temple. They're to oversee the, the, the ministry in the temple there. They represent the people before God in the sacrifices. And yet here they are saying things for money, taking bribes. And in spite of being false shepherds, look at, they're still clinging to the security of being in covenant relationship with God. Did you see it there? The very end of the passage, very end of 11. They know they're, they're saying false messages, but they're still like, yeah, but we're in covenant with Yahweh as if he doesn't see or hear. It's shocking, isn't it? This is so evil. We're secure, they say. We have the temple. The Lord is in our midst. We're we're children of Abraham. All these different things, right? Nothing bad's gonna happen to us. Wow. They see no inconsistency in selfishly exploiting the people and padding their bank accounts and still giving lip service to worshiping Yahweh. They live in a world of false security and cheap grace. They claim God's favor, but there's no repentance in their heart and there's no acknowledging their sin. And so, verse 12, Micah pronounces the results of this abomination. Therefore, verse 12, on account of you, false prophets, false priests, priests, Zion will be plowed as a field. What's Zion? That's Jerusalem. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. So do you see the reversal of fortune here? God's saying, look, you believe you're protected from calamity? You think that temple... That building, I can't bring that down? You think that's going to be a protective barrier between you and my wrath? Are you kidding? And so the promise is, yeah, in the future, Jerusalem will be leveled because of her sin. Plowed as a field, turned into a heap of ruins, and the temple will be brought down. Every stone thrown down. That's the promise because of their sin. Wow. Strong language. Last category, judges. Judges at the gate. Go back up up, up to uh, chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, here now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? Rhetorical question. Aren't you supposed to know what justice is? Verse 2, you who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people strip off their skin from them, break their bones and chop them up as for the pot and as meat in a kettle. Wow. The best understanding there in terms of the, the terms heads and rulers is that these are tribal leaders who settle disputes in the cities they live in. They come to the city gate and they settle disputes between the people, but they don't know what justice is. Today, they'd be like what we would call circuit court judges. They're to administer blind justice without favoritism, using the covenant law as their guide. They're to be neutral, regardless of uh, of social level, regardless of race, tribe, tongue, any of those things, blind justice based on covenant law. And all the people, because of their knowledge and reputations, of all the people in, in, in a city, they ought to know what justice looks like. But tragically, Micah says here, they have no clue. What has blinded them? Ambition, greed, financial gain, personal advancement. They will, they will render a judgment according to what gets them what they need and what they want. And so they act like cannibals towards towards God's people. They use their stature and their power to chew up the common man. That's why the language there is so severe. And so in verse 4 now, Micah says this will be the result. Chapter 3, verse 4, then they, these judges, will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he, God, will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. Here's the thing. At some point, everybody... Everybody has a need, right? At some point, something bad happens. And in that day, when you cry out to the Lord, having lived in a wicked way, having oppressed people, having been a force for injustice, oh, but now, Lord, I need you. God says, mm-mm, I'll hide my face from you until you deal with your sin. I'll hide my face. That's, that's not where you want to be, right? So corruption Greed, oppression, abuse of power, injustice at every level of society in Judah in Micah's day. That's the indictment. That's what Micah has to say. And that's what we need to hear with our voices today to say, well, what about us? What, how does this apply to us? What should the people of Judah do at this point? What should the people of America do at this point? Is this reversible? What would it look like to repent and to change course? For that, we're going to look at everybody's favorite passage in Micah. Go over to chapter 6. Everybody's favorite passage in Micah. Chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Question. What should I bring, right? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Rhetorical questions, right? Is this really what you want, Lord? Is this what you're looking for, sacrificial animals? Does that make you happy? All this oil precious things. How about this? How about my firstborn child? If I brought him or her and sacrificed to you, would that take away my sin? Micah's walking down a logical path here, isn't he? It's not that sacrifices had no place in Old Testament worship. It's not that God is saying, please sacrifice your child. Of course not. Micah is showing Judah that you can't sin against one another without consequence. God won't allow it. You can't go through life thumbing your nose at God and his law and doing as you please and then calling on him when it's convenient for you and then saying, well, bring a little gift to appease your anger. It's not the way it works. Not in the covenant community. That's what Mike is saying here. God is not impressed by your empty religious ritual, not impressed by all these things that you can bring to the fire. And you can't bargain with him for a favor by offering more and more things without repentance in order to somehow avert disaster. Like, we can buy God off if we just bring enough stuff to him. Micah's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. What is it that God desires? Look at verse 8. Here's the famous verse. He's told you, oh man. He's told you what is good. And look, the reality is Micah's saying, look, you guys, you know this. You know the law. You know your obligations. You know what the blessings are, incur- You know all of it. So don't play stupid here. He's told you what he requires. And what is it? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, just a really brief teaching on this. A lot of people, I think, have overstressed this message to the point where they say, well, here's an exhaustive list of all the things that God wants of us. Three things. I think that's a mistake. I don't think this is meant to be an exhaustive list. There's many more commands in scripture, right? Things that that God requires of us. This is what we call a virtue list. It's a representative virtue list. It's a list, it's brief, a list of virtues that Micah is holding up as a contrast to all the other things that he's talked about so far. Okay, so it's a contrasting list. Here's what I mean by that. God is seeking worshipers who do justice instead of oppressing people. See the contrast? God is seeking worshipers who practice kindness, not greed. God is seeking worshipers who walk in humility, not abusing their power. So it was designed to be a list to contrast some of the things that he's talking about in his prophecy. But those three things are really important. Justice, kindness, and humility. And guys, listen. Those are not things that we really should even have to say, boy, I'm going to go out and practice these things this week. Because it's not about a checklist. This is not about, I gotta go do these three things to earn God's favor. Guys, those things ought to flow out of our life as just a, a natural fruit of the Spirit, right? Those things ought to just come out of us because we love Jesus Christ, we're found in him and the Spirit's leading us. Now, sometimes we need to go back to that list and go, I probably need to repent, I'm not doing as good as I should on these things, but the Spirit can lead us in that as well. Now, can we talk about Justice. How controversial is the concept of justice in the church today? Anybody, anybody do any reading on this subject? Okay, just tell me I'm not the only one. There's a lot of ink that's been spilled on the concept of justice, I would say, in the last five or six years. And it's only controversial and, and sort of gotten a bad rap in Christian culture because what we've, what we've done is, and we've got to stop doing this as Christians, allowing definitions from the world to seep into our biblical definitions, even if they overlap slightly, but then to get it all muddled up so we really don't understand what things are. And so what's happened is a lot of people in our culture talk about this thing called social justice. We have social justice warriors, and then people look at the Bible and they read justice and they go, no, that's bad. And no, 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 guys, biblical justice is a biblical concept. Okay. Justice, that was actually redundant, wasn't it? Biblical justice is a biblical concept. So we can't just go ignore justice in scripture because some progressive lefties in our culture have decided to hijack the word. So can we at least agree on that? Because you saw what Micah said, do justice. We can't ignore that. So don't don't let the progressive left steal our definitions. You know, they're pretty good at that. They've tried to steal marriage, haven't they? So we gotta be careful and protect those things and make sure we know what we're talking about. Biblical concept. So let me try to define this for you a little bit. And by the way, there's some guys that have done some great work on this. Uh, Tim Keller, D.A. Carson, Tim Challey, some guys who've done some really good work on trying to define what biblical justice is. But let me try to give you a few things up on the screen that might help you. At its core, doing justice means doing the opposite of what Mike has described so far in this prophecy. Battling for the principle of equitable treatment for all people without bias and without favoritism. Does that sound simple? It's not, is it? It's not, Because we get everything mixed up. We get all, all these different messages coming at us. But as Christians, we should be committed to that. So whether we're talking about justice in government or in the courts or in the workplace or in the church, in our day-to-day relationships... Every single Christian should be concerned about fundamental fairness and equal protection of all people. It got quiet. It got quiet. So think back to Micah's indictment, and and maybe just do a little heart check on yourself. I'm just going to ask a series of questions about how you live out justice in your life. A couple of questions. So we all have a measure of financial resources in our life. We all have a measure of power over other people in our lives. How are you wielding those things in your life? Are you doing it fairly, equitably? It's a really important question. And, and as, you, as some of you guys are younger, as you get older, you'll have more financial resources and more power, and you'll move up the chain in your, in your workplace or whatever. Are you treating people fairly and with equity? Are you guilty in any way of scheming to take advantage of people? in your life? Are you one of those people that schemes on their bed at night and in the morning does it? Because you can. You can get away with it. Are you scheming to oppress people in some way? Maybe you've never even thought about it in those terms, but God has. Have you ever ripped off somebody by using false scales or measures and gained by it? Ah, just a little bit. See, we tend to be okay with a little white lie or a little cutting corners. Is God? False scales and measures. Are you guilty of telling lies to manipulate a situation and then gain an unfair advantage over somebody who may not be as in the know as you are? You're like, I'm a little more educated or I know this issue a little bit better so I I can manipulate this conversation and maybe gain an advantage over somebody. God sees that. Have you ever been placed in a position of authority and then misused that power and hurt people? maybe ruling unfairly out of greed or because of a particular bias against somebody. Like, you know, I'm in a position of power. I don't really like that person. And I'm going to very subtly take it out on them. So these are things that we need to, in our hearts, we need to deal with. By the way, we can confess that sin, right? And be right with God. But don't ignore it. Because these things are important. Justice is important to God. So that's one part of doing justice. It's making sure that I personally... And not involved in injustice, in oppression, in abusing anybody. But there's other parts of this as well. I'll give you a couple of them. First of all, as a people that value justice, we ought to be doing whatever we can to advocate for fairness and equality in the various structures that we operate in, in society. And that might range from being informed about policies and voting for candidates who act justly, all the way to taking a stand and speaking out when we see injustice and saying, you know what, I'm going to have the courage to stand up, and and I'm going to say, no, that's not right, and here's why. And in the process of that, pointing people to God and to the gospel, but taking a stand and saying, no, that's unjust. That's the second way to do it. And finally, a third way is looking out for the most vulnerable members of society, standing up for them when they don't have a voice. They may not have the same voice and the same power or authority or uh, whatever that you have, are you willing to stand up and be their voice? What, I'm, what am I talking about? Babies in the womb, young children, the very old, the terminally ill, the disabled, the mentally ill, those who are weak, those who are poor, those who are on the street, who are destitute, those who, are, who you know are being unfairly discriminated against or unfairly treated by somebody who's in a position to oppress them. When we see these things, we need to, be, we need to take a voice to it. We need to, to be their voice if we have to. So in some cases, we can come alongside the vulnerable and we can, we can speak for them, we can advocate for them, or we can just meet their needs or we can help them in some way, but we can't ignore it. And I think that's what God's saying through Micah. We just can't ignore injustice. We can't just go through life like with blinders on and say, I don't see this. Now, here's the challenge. I, everything I've said so far, you're probably like, yeah, I get that. Can I tell you what I think the biggest challenge is with doing justice? Which justice? Because there's so many things to do, right? There's so, I mean, I, if you open your eyes, you will see this everywhere. And it's like, well, what? You feel powerless, right? You're like, what, what do I do? And I get that, but I think it comes down, and this comes from Tim Challies. He's written a really good piece on this. He calls it the principle of moral proximity. And here's basically what it means, I'll put it up here. The closer you are to a need, the greater the moral obligation is for you to act. The closer you are, the greater obligation you have to act. Now by closer, I mean a couple things. First of all, it might be geographical. It might be geographical. I'm more obligated, I think, to do something when there's an injustice that's connected to to my neighborhood or my community or my city versus some injustice that's taking place in a faraway state or country. I'm more obligated when it's closer to me. I can't just, again, can't just drive down the street street and say, I don't see this. I need to do something about it. And then secondly, the idea of proximity of relationship. I'm more obligated to do something when it relates to my family or my church family or Christian families in my community than to strangers or to people that live halfway around the world. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me when I say that because some of you guys are like, but I love global missions. Amen and amen. There are so many needs and so many causes out there that are worth our time. What I'm trying to do is just let you know that sometimes you got to prioritize it because we can't do everything that we want to do, right? Right. So you might be be called to go across the other side of the earth and meet needs. Praise the Lord for that. All I'm saying is, is as we sit here in Santa Clarita, there's injustice everywhere around us. In our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our city, that we can go and we can attend to. Does that make sense? We can't do everything, so we've got to prioritize things. There is, maybe you've heard this before, there's the I oughts and the I cans. And we can address injustice anywhere in the world, even with strangers, but I ought to be most concerned with my community and my church family, right? And not just ignore those things. So the I can and the ought, that is really, really important. But again, the big takeaway from Micah is that justice matters. We're told by God that we are required to do justice. And so all of us are going to have to work this out in our lives, right? Right? Or or in our community groups, or or whoever we're meeting with, to say, well, how am I doing in this area? Am I living out this particular statement from Micah to do justice? Please, please, just don't ignore it, because God's concerned with it. Amen. All right, I want to wrap up our time this morning by doing what we've been doing each and every week, and not just stopping with indictment and judgment, because that's no fun. But let's look at the hope that Micah leaves us with, and I'm. Guys, I'm so encouraged by this. Every week as I read through these books, all these indictments come out, all these rebukes, all these judgments, but judgment's never God's final word. There's always hope. And Micah gives us this brilliant window into how God plans to forgive your sins and mine. And so he sees two events. Remember how we talked about Joel? He saw four different things in the distance. Well, Micah sees two really important things in the distance. And looking back, we can see what they are. One is the first coming of Christ, and the other one is the second coming of Christ. All in one seven-chapter prophecy. Woo! So flip over to chapter five, and let's look at these two. Micah chapter five. By the way, if anybody wants to talk about justice, let me know. (laughs) Because I know I was looking at your... I'm always trying to read your faces. You're all like... Either you're like upset at me, or you're just spinning your head. You're like, I'm thinking about this. So let me know one way or the other. Please? Okay. Chapter 5, verse 2. You know this passage, right? This is everybody's favorite Christmas passage. As for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago. From the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So, besides the really obvious thing there, that the Messiah is coming out of the little town of Bethlehem, which is pretty cool. Besides the obvious there, In the context of Micah's day, what's really being said here is basically this, guys, God is faithful to fulfill his word. Again, we tend to, we'll lift this passage out of here and go, ooh, Christmas, right? But in this context, what Micah is saying is God, and listen, doom is coming to Israel injustice is in Judah, but in spite of all that, Micah says, hey, hey, God is faithful to his promises. And one is coming. He's coming. So don't get impatient. He's coming and he's super special, isn't he? Remember 2 Samuel 7, we got this great promise, spoken to David 300 years before Micah. And what does it say? Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. God said that to David. And so Micah says, yep, God's going to do that. Let me tell you about it. He will send a king who will sit on David's throne forever. And he's so much greater than David that his origins are from eternity. Now, think about that. If you're a a Jew living in the days of Micah and you read that, that's a mesmerizing statement. That's like an exciting statement. God is faithful in the midst of the injustice and the chaos of our time. The Messiah is coming. And, and this to me, this brings up another funny issue. How many of you guys, in the quiet of your prayer life or study, you cry out to God and you're like, Jesus, could you come back? Like, it's been a long time. And I'm done with this world, and it would be really great if you come back. Why are you taking so long? Anybody else impatient like that? God doesn't operate on our calendar. Because this promise from, from Micah... 700 years away from being fulfilled. So always remember that when we start counting things down, like, why isn't it happening? This prophecy is still 700 years. That's at least, what, 10, 12 generations of people from Judah before they're going to see this take place. So be patient. God's timetable is not ours, but he's always going to be faithful. He will bring his promises to pass in his timing. So that's the first thing that Micah sees Right there. And then beyond that, turn over to chapter 4. Not just the coming of the king, but the return of the king. Lord of the Rings fans. (laughs) The return of the king, right? The Davidic king. He sees that as well. He sees the earthly millennial kingdom of Jesus, of Yeshua, in chapter 4. What I love about this series is that we just get to read a lot of scripture, which is really fun. So chapter 4, verse 1. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised up above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. How cool is that? Israel will have prominence among all the nations in this time. Verse two, many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he, who's the he? King Jesus that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths for from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he, King Jesus, will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. He'll rule the whole world. Even nations far away from Jerusalem, he will rule and he will make decisions. And they'll say, amen and amen, you are God on the earth. That's pretty cool. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. This is, okay. Again, if, you're, if you don't believe that's literally gonna happen, if you're a millennial and, and I love you, <laughs> I really do, but how do you expect that to ever happen without Jesus ruling from Jerusalem? That nations will stop going to war against each other? Never going to happen because of our hearts, right? But it says here in this period, when Jesus reigns, there will be no more war. He will establish a global peace. Verse 4, each of them, and listen, listen to the provision and the prosperity. Verse 4, each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. We'll have everything that we need with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. No more fear because Jesus is ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. Second coming of Christ, millennial kingdom. Micah gets it all. It's amazing. Beautiful picture. So we get the lamb that comes out of Bethlehem, and we get the lion of Judah who comes out of heaven and returns in glory and power. First advent, second advent, lamb, lion, suffering servant, conquering king, Micah. <laughs> Micah. Now I'm, I'm oh Grant, I'm doing hand motions. This is not good. Okay. All right. Okay, finally, how are we doing on time? i got two more things I want to do. I want to look at, look at the last few verses of the entire prophecy, chapter 7. It's just worth looking at these because the language is so beautiful. Man, sometimes we go, ah, grace is so prominent in the New Testament. I wish I saw it more clearly in the Old. Seriously? Okay, here it is. This is God's grace in the Old Testament because Israel retains to this day, folks, to this day, a hope and a future that's rooted in God's covenant promises and in his grace. Listen, chapter seven, verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? The believing remnant. God is always maintaining a believing remnant of Jews. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in, look at that, unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And then listen to the covenant promise in verse 20. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. And Paul says, amen. The the promises given to Israel are irrevocable. And here we see it. This is so beautiful. Do you see grace? All over the place here, God has a future for His people Israel. Now, one more passage. Got to do this. I'm gonna. I am going to close with this. But this is the. Co- okay, I'm gonna geek out for a second. Let me geek out. This is one of the coolest historical notes that we have in Scripture. And you don't have to turn there. I'm just gonna give you the reference. It's in the Book of Jeremiah, and it concerns the impact that Micah's prophecy had on King Hezekiah. Very rarely in Scripture, I can't think of another place where one prophet references another prophet. Where one prophet says, by the way, back in the day, this guy, amazing stuff. But Jeremiah does this. Jeremiah references the work of Micah, which was more than 100 years. Micah's long dead and gone. But Jeremiah says, do you remember what Micah said? Let me me just read the passage to you. This is really cool. This is the point in Jeremiah's story where the officials of Judah are trying to kill him because they hate his message. See, nothing changes, right? The kings of Judah, the officials of Judah, they want to get rid of Jeremiah because they hate his message. And so Jeremiah responds by rebuking these officials, and they come to their senses. This is Jeremiah 26, 16. It says, Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and to the prophets, No death sentence for this man, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. They woke up and said, You know what? This guy's a real prophet. We cannot put him to death. Verse 17. Verse 17. Then some of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people saying, here it is, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and he spoke to all the peoples of Judah saying, thus the Lord of hosts has said. Okay. So more than a hundred years later, acknowledging that Micah is a true prophet, here's the quote. We've already read it today. Zion will be plowed as a field and Jerusalem will become ruins and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest. Verse 19, question, did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah put him to death? Did they put Micah to death for saying that? No. Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. Here's what we're saying. What do we learn from this? Micah's prophecy had a huge impact in his day. All this indictment against injustice, all this rebuke of the people, it changed at least King Hezekiah, and my guess is many more people were impacted by what Hezekiah, or what Micah had to say. And God relented. Under the inspiration of scripture, in Jeremiah it says that Micah prophesied, Hezekiah was moved to do reform, and we know he did historically, he did all kinds of reform in the land, And God relented of the immediate wrath that he had threatened upon Judah. This makes Micah one of the most influential and impactful prophets in the whole Old Testament canon. And we have inspired scripture to tell us just how important it was. God's word spoken in the 8th century BC was still being talked about in the 6th century BC. That's the power of God's word. That's the transforming power of a prophecy like Micah. So, Wow. Friends, we live in a challenging time in America in 2020. There is no doubt about it. It's not that different from past ages, not that different from what Mike had dealt with. But we can rest in a whole bunch of things that we learned from this today. That God is sovereign. That nothing surprises him. That he's faithful. That his word is trustworthy. That his promises for you, for to care for you, even in the midst of the chaos and the difficulty, even if judgment came upon America... Would anybody be surprised if judgment came upon us? Even if it did, and we got caught up in it, just as the faithful remnant of Judah got caught up in the Babylonian attack. Do you trust that God will care for you? Will he fulfill his promises to you? That's an important question to ask. We don't know if judgment's coming. We don't know, but God is faithful. And so let us be faithful in return. Let us be faithful in response to what he requires of us to lay aside all forms of corruption in our life, to lay aside greed and oppression and abuse of power and injustice. And let us be diligent to pursue a life of true worship in the spirit where we do justice. Together, we do justice. Where we show kindness and mercy to our neighbor, to everybody, and where we walk humbly with God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.